Since 1989, NBC has aired public service announcements under the banner, The More You Know. You children of the 90s, you know all about The More You Know. The very first segment featured Tom Brokaw, and for 34 years, The More You Know is still happening. I didn't know that. But for 34 years, TV actors, sports stars, even presidents have appeared with the goal of bringing us, quote, as much information as possible about certain topics. Of course, commercials are 30 seconds long, so I'm not sure they're hitting that as much information as possible target like they think. But one of Paul's major goals in writing to the Ephesians was to help them understand what it really means to be in Christ. Uh, one of the uh, one commentator, a variety of commentators point out that um, we use the term Christian, and that's great. Uh, we're going to keep using the term Christian. In the New Testament, the term Christian is only used three times, and much, much, much more often the term in Christ is used, and Paul particularly loved to use this term in Christ. And so he's trying to explain to these Ephesians what it means to be in Christ. And later, past our passage, he's going to say, I keep asking that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And he brings up this theme in a variety of ways throughout the book. In chapter 3, he prays that Christians would be rooted and established and able to comprehend God's love for them. That's what he wants. And because the Holy Spirit is inspiring this letter, it's what God wants for us as well. The more we know about our relationship with the Lord, the more our lives will be full of the fullness of God and all the benefits that come along with it. As we saw last time, the, the book of Ephesians opens with an ecstatic three stanza song describing the wonders of salvation. The first section we covered last time, and it's about God's work in eternity past, the plan of election and predestination, and how that provides the way for anyone to be adopted into the family of God. And next, the song turns to the present and the future, how God's redemptive plan brings immeasurable blessings for both our now and for our future. So beginning in verse 7, we read, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Redemption means that we were captives, we were slaves, but God came and paid a ransom so that we could be set free and, in addition to that, so that He could purchase us for Himself. It's one thing to emancipate uh, someone from slavery or from captivity. It's another thing to then say, and now you're coming home with me because you're part of my family. And the Lord says, I bought you. I, I blood bought you with the blood of Jesus. And it can only be done by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for a person to be saved. We heard that tonight in our prayer time as someone shared um, those scriptures. There's no other path that leads to heaven, only by the blood of Christ. And Paul says it right here, you have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. But the book of Hebrews is even more explicit. It says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so there's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to eternal life. There's no other way to deal with the, the debt that you owe to a holy God or the guilt of the wrong things that you've done. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in pagan religions, and we have to remember that the Ephesians were surrounded by tons of super weird pagan religions, and most of these believers, in fact, 
Paul is talking specifically to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, and they came out of weirdo pagan religions that were doing all kinds of strange things and believing all kinds of strange things. But in pagan religions, blood is brought to appease an angry God, right? You have to kind of fire extinguish the anger of your God by bringing blood. And usually not, you know, not your blood, somebody else's blood. And that's not what's happening, though, with the God of the Bible. It's not what's happening between Jesus and the Father. Instead, what we're seeing is that God himself took his greatest treasure, the most valuable thing that he had, the thing that had the most worth, the most value, the the most precious uh, thing that he had, and he used that to pay our debt. One commentator writes, grace is not something God gives us, rather it is God's giving us himself. And that's true. We're going to see this multiple times in this passage, that God doesn't just give us a rescue or doesn't just give us a better life or doesn't just give us, you know, forgiveness. He gives us himself. And he says, now I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to make you a forever home. I'm going to come to, and bring you to be with me forever because he is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And in grace, he has given us himself. If you are in Christ, you have been liberated from sin. You are no longer its prisoner. You are no longer uh, forced to live under its tyrannical power. Before you're a Christian, you are held captive by sin. It binds you. You're dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. But then the Lord Jesus comes along and he rescues us. He redeems us. He liberates us from that state of slavery and captivity. And we no longer have to live under the tyrannical power of sin. That doesn't mean we're never tempted. But there is no temptation that is greater than we can withstand in the power of God. The, the, The New Testament is clear on that. On top of that liberation, on top of that being set free, along with redemption, we're told here God gives us forgiveness. Now, this is an important extra. Have you ever wronged someone? Maybe you broke something of theirs, you dented their car door, you broke your neighbor's window, something along those lines, and you square the debt, right? You pay for the window, you you do whatever you need to do, you exchange insurance, but maybe you could tell relationally that they still held resentment against you, right? Yeah, me and that neighbor aren't on good terms anymore because my fence keeps falling down into their yard. And even though I'm trying to live at peace with him, I can tell that he's mad at me, right? We've all experienced something like that on one level or another. That's not what God does with us at all. God makes it very clear that he not only frees us, he forgives us in Christ. In Hebrews 8, God says, I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. So important. And such a good reminder that God does not remember your sin. If you're a Christian, that doesn't mean, well, then it doesn't matter what I do because God just forgets it. That's not it at all. Should we sin, that grace would abound. God forbid. That's what Paul would say in a different passage. But we no longer have to live under the weight of our guilt, of our sin, because God has redeemed us and he has forgiven us. And so what a wonderful announcement Paul was giving them. And of course, it's easy for us to overlook the fact, though, that some of these members who originally received this letter, some of those actual people were actually slaves, like real slaves that were owned by people. 
Now, slavery in the Roman Empire was not the same as slavery uh, in American history, right? They call that chattel slavery, right? Uh, In the Roman Empire, it was somewhat more like being an employee, but not like how we are employees at a job today, right? You were a slave. It was a class. It was, uh, you were limited in rights and things like that, but you weren't owned in exactly the same way in most cases. But still, some of the people hearing this were slaves. In fact, one quarter of the city's population were slaves, 60,000 out of a quarter of a million. If I were one of the slaves hearing this message, I might think, okay, well, how about some practical liberation for me right now? Why isn't that on the table? And they're going to get to a later, uh, a later chapter, later section of the letter where Paul says, hey, you slaves, go on being slaves. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought I'm, I thought I'm re- liberated. I thought I'm redeemed. I thought I'm set free. More on that in a moment. Verse 8, that God richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. God's grace has been poured out. Our desire uh, and our heritage here at Calvary is to be about grace. We want it to be definitive of how we think about God, how we relate to others, how we do ministry. Um, certainly, we don't always do that perfectly. We, we always want to grow in grace. I'm not saying we always hit that mark. But we believe grace changes everything, right? If you've never read Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, you should do so. You can read it free online. A wonderful book. God has poured out his grace. And this is something that I personally had never really thought very much about before, but God has poured out so much grace for his people that his grace outpaces the volume and power of sin in our world. We live in a world that is absolutely jam-packed full of festering sin, right? Everywhere we look, uh, from high to low, from left to right, there's just, there's just sin ruining everything everywhere. And the Bible says, okay, yeah, there's a lot of sin. That's why we need to be redeemed. And that's why God is accomplishing a plan to not just redeem individual human beings, but to redeem all of creation, right? But it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's a greater volume, a greater power, a greater availability of grace than there even is of sin in our world. There's more than enough for all the problems that have multiplied throughout the world. That grace is for you. It works through you. It's poured out in your life, not just for one Christian or another. The Lord says, I've poured it out for all of my people grace for all of them to live in and to enjoy and to operate with. Part of the benefit of God's grace, as we see here, is that we are able to then receive all wisdom and understanding from the Lord. It doesn't mean we just get to download a bunch of information. We don't just become, you know, an encyclopedia or anything like that. But when the Bible talks about wisdom and understanding, it's, it's talking about a particular set of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom means knowing God and our relation to him. Understanding means knowing how to live faithfully in concrete situations, right? So the truth of God applied to real everyday living. Now, all that we need for life and godliness is contained in the scripture. We receive that. And as we understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, it applies to everything we need to do, right? But the Lord is giving us his wisdom and his understanding. It is poured out alongside his grace for those who believe. R. Kent Hughes writes, those equipped 
with wisdom and understanding can discern the spirit of the times and stand tall and confident. Coming out of paganism, again, a lot of these people were coming out of paganism. Coming out, I mean, we've talked about this before in one of our earlier studies. We, we, can't, under, we can't fathom a world that hasn't been impacted by Scripture, by the Bible, by Christianity, right? We live in Western civilization, uh, and the Bible is the, you know, the fundamental document of Western civilization. That doesn't mean that every nation in the West is a Christian nation, much to the contrary. But as far as the Bible, we, we've never lived in a world where the Bible is not the bestseller for the last um, 500 years, right? And so these people, though, were coming out of Gentile paganism, and they had never heard of Jesus Christ until they heard the gospel for the first time. And there weren't churches on every, you know, every few blocks. There was one. And it had only been around for a couple of years. And so they come in now of paganism. These Ephesians needed a lot of understanding. They needed uh, truth. They needed a new moral compass. They needed a new philosophy, altogether new. Um, many of them had been steeped in sorcery and the occult and all sorts of strange practices. We remember in Acts 19 when Paul came to Ephesus, you know, and people started getting saved. We see there that a bunch of people who were joining the church, they came and they took their magic books that they had living their lives by and they burned them all. And it was like a, a huge bonfire and it was like a ton of value that was just burned up, right? But they said, okay, I'm here to join the church. But everything, I, it's like one of those dumb scenes in movies where they say, forget everything you think you know, right? But these people actually had to forget everything they knew. And Paul's starting them over and saying, hey, you, you have to learn a brand new truth, but here's the good news. God has poured out his truth and his understanding for you um, so that you can be confident in your walk with the Lord. And he's telling them that they have the instruction and the revelation necessary to understand life and navigate rightly. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. To us, the word mystery uh, carries with it baggage that I can only describe as, right, mystery. Uh, It means something vague, shrouded, unknown, uh, sort of cloudy and foggy. In the Bible, this term is not used that way. That's not what a mystery is in the Bible. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the word mystery in the New Testament does not mean something that is incomprehensible to the human mind, but rather something that is undiscoverable by the unaided human mind. And so a mystery in the New Testament, this is something that comes up more than once, Uh, Paul uses it, I think, six times in this book, four times in other books, and uh, it's used elsewhere in the Scripture as well. But a mystery in the Bible is a teaching that God is specifically revealing to his people that we wouldn't have been able to figure out just on our own without his particular revelation through the Bible. The mystery here in verses 9 and 10 is that God's will was to bring everything in heaven and on earth together in Christ. And a lot of the rest of the uh, book is going to discuss the work of Christ to not just, uh, you know, not just accomplish a general work, but to bring together Jews and Gentiles into one new body, the church, and that was going to blow everybody's mind. The International Standard Version has a very helpful translation of verse 10, at least it was helpful to me. It says, God's plan is to usher in the fullness of the times and to gather up all things in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. 
This would have special significance to the Ephesians because they were surrounded by what were called mystery religions. This was like when, when, when they heard this term, they would have perked up and said, wait, are we part of a mystery religion? Uh, the mystery religions, uh, there was a bunch of them. We don't know a whole ton about it because they were mystery religions and they didn't tell people things. They were super secret cults with strange and awful initiation rituals. Partakers committed sacrilege if they divulged what happened during their ceremonies. From what we know, some of their practices we can look at and say, oh, they were perverted copies of what Christians were doing, of Christian truth. For example, they would see cult members as a brotherhood. You're my brother, okay? That is similar to what we see in the church. Their initiation rituals usually mimed death and resurrection. Confession was expected, followed by a baptism. And then there's a record of a rite held where participants distributed and ate the roasted heart of a child which would be a satanic forgery of communion, right? This is my body broken for you. And so this was happening, you know, in their neighborhoods in the city of Ephesus. And so now Paul says, okay, I have a mystery for you, but this is not like the mystery religions around you who are doing super weird things in the dark. He says, no, in Christianity, the truths of God are not on a secret need-to-know basis. Anyone is welcome to receive the whole truth about the plan of God. Jesus told his disciples in the book of Matthew, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know. Uh, he wasn't withholding it for, for you know, just specific people. He's saying, hey, if you're a disciple, you want to follow me, I'm going to tell you the secrets of the kingdom. Paul explained to the Corinthians that God reveals everything by the Spirit to those who love him. And so he says, man, if you want to be a Christian, the Lord's going to reveal everything to you. He's going to reveal mysteries to you. Christ is gathering up all things to himself. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved in the end, sadly. It means that there is nothing that is going to slip through Christ's fingers. It's not going to get to the point where Jesus returns back and he says, hey, I got almost everything but Neptune. I don't know what's going on with Neptune. I didn't, you know, we'll get around to, you know, fixing Neptune. And see, we're used to um, interventions or takeovers that are more like that. You know, think big promises from the government, big promises from this law, this bill, this, you know, initiative. And then in the end, it's like, well, we did one half of 1% of what we said we were going to do, but isn't that great? Nothing's going to slip through Christ's fingers when he comes to rule and reign in his kingdom. God accomplishes his plan, uh, and he's going to do so from beginning to end. But what we see, and it's referenced even here, God accomplishes his plan differently in different ages. Now, I'm reading out of the CSB version of the Bible, and when I do, there's an important term that gets hidden away in these verses, and it's the word dispensation. You'll see it in the New King James Version. Your version might use the word administration. It's a particular term. God administrates his redemptive program in different ways at different times. We call this dispensations. And that seems like a strange word because we don't use it in regular life. All that it means is that in different eras, in different times, that God interacts with human beings in different ways. The plainest example is the fact that none of us brought a lamb to church tonight to sacrifice to worship God, 
right? But for thousands of years, that is what people did when they came to worship God because God had said, hey, when you come to worship me, you bring a lamb, you bring a ram, you bring a bull, and you offer it on the altar. And there's a bunch of things around that. That's how I'm relating to you in this dispensation. That administration, that dispensation is over. Classical dispensationalism identifies seven different administrations, and like everything in theology, people argue about it. That's fine. People are always saved the same way, though. See, one of the criticisms that gets lobbed at dispensationalism is that, well, you're saying people got saved one way in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. We're not saying that at all. People are always saved the same way, by grace through faith. But the way God interacts with man, his arrangements with them, his focus is different in each dispensation, and that is very obvious. The way God interacted with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall is completely different than the way God interacted with Moses and the children of Israel in, under the law, which is completely different than the way that God interacts with the New Testament church, which is going to be completely different than the way he interacts with human beings in the, in the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, right? That's all we're saying, that the Lord administrates his program differently in different, what we would call times. Now, here at Calvary, we are dispensationalist. It's not an essential doctrine, but it is a, a significant one because it influences our understanding of what God is doing, his plan, how he does it. It influences our understanding of the prophecies found in Scripture, the importance of the nation of Israel being distinct from the church, and the way that we just interpret the Bible from start to finish. And so it's, it's important, uh, but it is non-essential. Now, dispensationalists sometimes get a bad rap out in the wider Christian world. Years ago, I was talking to a friend. I love him. He's a good guy. And I, would say, I asked him, hey, are you reading anything interesting right now? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm reading a book about how to talk to dispensationalists. And I said, oh, really? Why don't you tell me about it? Uh, and he proceeded to explain how dispensationalists miss the main thing Jesus talked about, and they never talk about the kingdom of God. They're all cessationists, meaning none of them believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And so I said, well, as a dispensationalist, I'm going to just have to disagree with you. I don't think you're right about what we believe. Uh, he didn't really want to talk after that. But it seemed obvious to me that he had never actually read anything a dispensationalist like Charles Ryrie had written or talked to a living, breathing dispensationalist about what we believe and why we believe it. He, be he seemed to just be influenced by what critics said about this viewpoint. And so sometimes you get a bad rap out there. That's okay. But here in these verses, Paul's point is that Christ is gathering up all things so that when the fullness of time comes, all will be accomplished according to his gracious will. But this is why some of the Ephesians who were slaves were going to remain slaves. Because God is working a great program over the course of millennia to save and to draw people and to gather up as many as can be saved as possible, right? And this is why you and I are going to suffer at times, and the Lord doesn't just put a stop to it, because he is long-suffering, and he's not willing that any should perish. He is a patient God and a God full of compassion. He is drawing people to himself. He is proclaiming his good news of salvation, and he waits hoping that more people will accept that invitation. Now, meanwhile, while he's waiting, we live in a fallen world, racked by sin, right? And so sin is operating. God's grace, which is much greater than sin, is also operating, but God waits. 
And so we suffer. And some of the Ephesians were going to stay slaves. And sometimes things didn't get better for God's people on a temporal level because it was God's desire that more and more people would get saved. When the Twin Towers came down on September 11th, thousands of first responders rushed into the carnage in an effort to save people stuck in the rubble. After 27 hours of effort, I was surprised. I, you know, I wasn't up on these numbers, but after 27 hours of effort, do you know how many people they pulled out of the rub- rubble? I would have guessed hundreds. It was 20. 20 people got pulled out of the rubble. In the 20 years since the towers came down, more survivors and first responders have died from the toxins they were exposed to at Ground Zero than died in the attack itself. 4,343 people have died as a result of being there after the towers came down. When the towers came down, 2,974 people lost their lives. And so particularly first responders, thousands have died because they went and tried to save. And in the end, they saved 20 people. Was it worth it for all of those thousands of people to rush in and sacrifice their lives, their futures, to suffer and die because of this effort? Well, the 20 people pulled out of the rubble certainly think so. Their families do too. And we know in a rhetorical sense that the lost are worth saving, the trapped are worth rescuing, even if it means that some of us have to put our lives on the line and, and put others before ourselves and, and maybe sacrifice ourselves so that they can be saved. We understand this on a basic human level, and the Lord says, yeah, and, and as a Christian, I'm asking you to put your life on the line to be a part of my rescue operation. And as my long-suffering waits, you might suffer, you might struggle, you might even die. But in the end, you're going to receive the great inheritance that Paul's going to get to here in a minute. And hopefully, you will be a, have been a part of God's rescue operation to bring more people into his family. As we suffer, we often want it to end in the slavery, in the sadness It will one day in the fullness of time, but for the time being, God's long-suffering waits, allowing us to endure by his grace, with his strength, in peace and joy. God says, I give all of these things to you, even if you're suffering, so that more people might be gathered into God's family. You know, Paul wanted to get to glory too, right? He said, man, to die would be just the tops. He says to die would be gain, but he understood the importance of God's work. And he said in Philippians, it would be better to go to heaven, but to live on in the flesh means fruitful work for me. It's a good perspective on suffering. 40 billion people have been born since Christ died, including you and me. I'm certainly glad his long-suffering waited for me and for other people in this room and for my family. Who else is he waiting for? Who else is he sending me after? Verse 11, in him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of one who works out everything in agreement with his purpose and will. We have received an inheritance. It's done. It's ours. You are not, if you're a Christian, you are not on probation with God. You are adopted. He signed the paper with his own blood. If you've had the, um, the privilege of being in a court proceeding where uh, kids are adopted, I've had the opportunity to be in a couple of those. 
and it's, it's a wonderful moment where the parents sign on the dotted line, and then the judge pronounces, it's done. They're adopted. It's not like a, now we'll see, <laughs> you know, make sure that you hit all of your target marks, kids. Otherwise, you know, you might have to get let go. No, it's done. They're adopted. You've received the inheritance as God's son or daughter. Now, the word Paul uses for plan here is not the same one he used before. If you're eagle-eyed in the CSB, you might say, okay, well, he said plan in verse 10. That meant dispensation. Is that the same word here? No, the word he uses for plan here means purpose. And it's also, though, a word that is used for the showbread in the tabernacle and the temple. And this highlights the fact that God has not only given us an inheritance from the wealth of his, of his grace, but that we are his portion. We are his inheritance. Thomas Newfeld writes, in bringing into being a worshiping community, the church, God has given himself a present. Our predestined purpose is to bring God praise and glory. Like the showbread in the tabernacle, in the coming ages, we're going to be put on display. And Paul's going to say this later in the book. We're going to be put on display in the coming ages as an example of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. You, the showbread in God's house. So since it's all done, does that mean that I can just coast? I've received, I'm done, I'm forgiven. So I can just coast, right? I'm, I can be like a spiritual trust fund baby and not like do anything, just kind of get where I'm going and, and cash in once I walk into heaven. No, God calls us to activity and investment right now because we are his children. There's kingdom work to do now. Jesus told, up, told us to store up treasures in heaven. John said, Watch yourself so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Not talking about losing your salvation, but talking about those rewards that we store up in heaven as we, uh, as we accomplish the things God gives us to do. As we receive these many diverse blessings from God that Paul's talking about, we're able to exercise our faith, invest in his kingdom, cooperate with the plan he's accomplishing, and then enjoy and enhance our, experience, our, our inheritance along the way. Verse 12, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Notice the language of choice here. Man's free will is a given in this song, and that's important for our study last week. Might bring praise to his glory keeps coming up. It's a phrase I kind of find hard to get a handle on. Once again, the ISV is helpful, so that we might live for his praise and glory. So those are the goals of our lives. If you're in Christ, that's, those are goals for your life. How can I praise God? How can I glorify him? These are base functions for every Christian life day by day. As we stand back a little from this song, what do we see Paul singing about? He's excited about the fact that believers can know, can understand, can be constantly growing and deepening. Paul is describing a relationship with God that is strong and confident and well-built and assured. He'll later say, I pray that you guys would be rooted and established. God wants you to realize and understand all of this stuff. Our modern Christian culture sometimes celebrates unknowing, weakness, vagueness, the emotional experience of what is called brokenness. And all I can say is that Paul's song is totally the opposite. It's not the vibe we're getting at all from the apostle. Instead, we're seeing that God's desire is that you and I have wisdom and hope and confidence and clarity and assurance and understanding so that we can be more and more full of the fullness of God in all aspects of our lives as we move around the world God has put us in 
to be a part of what he's trying to do. Verse 13, you too have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's another significant verse, especially given the debate over the doctrine of election that we covered last time. When were you sealed in the Holy Spirit, according to Paul? In eternity past, when God picked you, but not the person next to you to go to heaven? That's not what he says. He says you were sealed when you heard the gospel and when you believed. And this is why preaching the gospel is so essential. And that's why we should take our commission to go and make disciples very seriously. Romans 10, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, we see the Trinity represented in Paul's song, the Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Spirit sealing, one God in three persons. The sealing work of the Spirit speaks of God's authentic guarantee to do what he has promised. In this time, seals were used on documents to prove authenticity. They were placed on cargo before shipping. The Holy Spirit does a lot in our lives, but as we see here, part of what he does is guarantee the promises of God. He guarantees that we will not be abandoned. He guarantees that we will be protected from the enemy guarantees that God will renew us and regenerate us, that he will help us in our weakness and so much more. And again, he's not just given us a token. Uh, he's not just, you know, have you ever gone somewhere and you have to leave your license because they're afraid you're going to run out, right, and, and steal the thing? That's not, the, the Lord doesn't just give us a token. To guarantee his promises, God gives us himself, He says, I'm going to give you myself as the guarantee of what I've promised to do. He's always going to the furthest extremes of care and compassion and tenderness toward us. He says, I'm going to make you some promises. I promise we're going to do this, this, and this. And to prove it, I'm going to stay with you until it's done. I'm giving you myself. I'm not giving you just a token. I'm not just giving you like a a, a little fob or a, a little, you know, airport locker key or a code or something like that. I'm giving you myself. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. If the Holy Spirit of God is just the down payment, how rich is our inheritance, right? Think of a down payment on a house, 5%, 10%, 20%, right? Compared to what you actually pay in the end, uh, you know, that, that's just, the down payment is just a few percent of the purchase price, not what you actually pay in the end. It's a very small amount in comparison. So God says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, with all of his power and all of his presence, all of his goodness, all of his kindness, all of his generosity, is just the down payment of all that we're going to receive in the end. What an incredible thought. No wonder Paul is singing. Back in 1989, when The More You Know started, the ads focused on negative things, on purpose, specifically. In that first commercial, Tom Brokaw said, the more you know about an impending disaster, the more likely you are to do something about it. Man, Tom, I'm just trying to watch cartoons on Saturday morning. The ads were designed to, quote, make you familiar with deepening crisis and terrible situations because, he said, as, our, as citizens, our job is to do something about it. Wow, and now back to, you know, blossom, I guess, you know. Paul didn't focus, though, in this more you know message. You like that blossom reference, didn't you? All right. The more <laughs> Paul says, hey, the more you know. 
But when he does so, he doesn't focus on the negative or difficult aspects of life. This song is all about blessing and joy and richness and the glories of being a Christian, that we have something to celebrate. Meanwhile, he's writing with a heavy chain tying him to a Roman guard day and night. A fact he doesn't even bother to mention until chapter 6. Oh, by the way, I'm in chains. I'm in prison. Some of the Ephesians were slaves. Some were suffering. All would struggle in one way or another. But what's Paul doing? He's drawing their attention and our attention to what God has done, what he is doing, what he has promised to do in the future on our behalf and through our lives. This is the plan. It's the plan all along. This is the Christian life. This is our well-informed, strong, and fruitful hope. The more we know about that, the more we are able to put our lives in perspective and rest in the fact that God is caring for us and will go above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine as he works out his loving, tender care in and through our lives.